Namaste. So it's a really good sign when our overflowing metta blessing baskets, we're going to need a wheelbarrow if we stayed here a few more days, but there's something so beautiful about what that reflects. And I've been very much um, feeling to such a sense of honoring each of you and your practice and your dedication, your presence, just been so beautiful. The groups, uh, there's just been this sense of waking up together and um, bringing this real honesty to, to where the contractions are. There's, there's so much amongst us of the, you know, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. There's so much here. And um, I'm, I'm just so touched by holding the contractions, whether they be um, working through an anger that's been historic and intense or the deep fear of several that really living with uncertainty about our our physicality, our well-being, deep conflict, wrenching conflict with others, loss. And then, of course, the self-doubt one, which we all know that self-judgment, self-doubt thing can be this undercurrent so often. And um, one of the reflections that has been really informative to me in these last months or whatever has been something I I read initially from a palliative caregiver and then I've heard again and again from other people kind of confirming which has to do with the primary regret of those that are dying and that regret is that I didn't live true to myself. And as I was listening, you know, to the, to the groups and the undercurrents, it became really uh, more and more apparent that, that that self-doubt comes when we sense that we're not aligned. There's some, some intuition about who we really are and who we really can be, and a sense of the gap, sense that in some way we're not uh, remembering and living from who we are. And actually, for any of us, unless we're free, there's going to be some sense of this ego and that the ego is not who we are and we're living from something less than who we are. And the question is, if we're not noticing that, there's an immediate sense of something's wrong with me because we realize there's more (laughs) and we're just not remembering it. Our suffering comes from forgetting who we are. It's really, that's the Buddha's probably most elegant formulation, that we get caught in an identity, a story of who we are that's less than the truth, and that causes pain. It also causes a longing, and part of what I have felt in a very visceral way here is that and that's, that's where the dedication to waking up comes It It creates this longing to come home and be who we are. I think it's probably one of the, for me, the simplest understandings. Like when I'm asked to sit, if I ask myself, well, what really matters? You know, the word authenticity and integrity comes into, but there's some way 
of just realizing and inhabiting the vast hardened awareness that is really here and then pain at forgetting. So this is Ajashanti. He says, all we really want in the end is to be connected once again with the truth of our being to realize what it is that wears this mask of self. To realize what it is that wears this mask of self. So we'll be exploring tonight how we go into the trance of forgetting. How do we get identified with this sliver of our being, this mask of self, some, and then the larger portion, um, this process of waking up that's happening. It's not a self that's conducting a waking up, but this waking up that's happening uh, where we're beginning to notice the trance more and more and feel the longing to come home and what helps support that. And what I'm describing as tonight's talk's really every talk. <laughs> you probably pick up. It's a different languaging. Okay, so a little bit of a look at this egoic trance. And there's going to be a message, in, in, and when I describe kind of the um, ideology of the trance, there's a message that comes again and again, which is, it's not our fault. That we're in a trance is not our fault. And we'd relieve ourselves of a whole lot of suffering if we get it that it's not our fault. There's nobody that's signed on to incarnate and signed on for a trance. It just happens, okay? This is one of my favorite lines from uh, Rumi. He says, whatever comes into being gets lost in being, drunkenly forgetting its way back. So the entire universe that incarnates into form. The very nature of incarnating into form, at least temporarily, is to forget our formless origin and source and belonging. We forget beingness. Here's, here's a, a way it's described from a, a Zen biologist. David Darling says, even the earliest single-celled creatures had established barriers, definite, sustainable barriers between themselves and the outside world. Thus, the foundations for dualism, the belief in the separation of self and the rest of the world were laid. So even these like one-celled creatures had a sense of the information inside this membrane is moi, and everything out there is the world out there, and then all these reflexes to push away and grasp are part of this evolutionary survival mechanism that we have. And we all have that, this perception of separateness, this grasping and pushing away, and that seems to be, when we're in that trance, the sum total of what we are. That's what we are. So then what happens because we have this frontal cortex that does a lot of thinking and figuring and comparing and judging and so on, is that we build up a whole storyline about that self that needs to push away and grasp, and that further solidifies the trance. That's the kind of next step of solidifying. One person supposedly went to a spiritual teacher and asked, how come the suffering, the trance, the whole deal? And the response was, 
to thicken the plot. <laughs> so, so a woman describes going into a meeting of colleagues and she, she's, everybody's sitting around. She says, you know, I was just out front of the building and there's a clown out there. And one of her colleagues said to her, was it a real clown or just someone dressed up as a clown? So who, <laughs> that's a slow, I know, <laughs> that takes a little time. So who's looking through the mask? I, I sometimes, often describe it like or, that we come into a challenging world, like all organisms, and so we take on a spacesuit to move through the difficult experiences. And what happens is we become identified with the spacesuit, the kind of ego that's controlling, manipulating, fearful, striving, and we forget who's looking through. That's the very nature of the egoic self. It forgets, it gets identified with the controller. Okay, so this trance keeps on solidifying given certain conditions. One of the conditions that solidifies more is if on the home front, in our circle of caregivers, there's a lack of understanding and love go from that language to abuse. But there's a message, and we, we all get it to some degree, that you need to be this way to be loved and respected. We get it, we, we just get it in different packages, that you're too needy or too hypersensitive or too out of control or too selfish. Or, and then we get other messages, that, and we internalize these. Your body's the wrong shape or the wrong size or the wrong look and your personality is such and such. And so we land up with this internalized notion, the set of shoulds of how we should be. And most of us, in any moment that we're suffering, if we look, it's because there's an idea we should be different. They come very early in different forms, these messages. One description, a little girl's watching her mother clean the kitchen and she notices her mother several strands of white hair sticking out in contrast to her brunette hair. And so she inquisitively asks, well, why are some of your hairs white, mama? And the response is, well, every time you do something wrong and make me cry or unhappy, one of my hairs turns white. So the little girl's kind of reflecting on this and then it's a revelation. Then she says, mama, how come all grandma's hairs are white? <laughs> Yeah, she's a sharp kid. So the trance thickens because we're given a message of how we should be, and there's a gap, and then we get that something wrong feeling, and we mistrust our lovability, and then out of that suffering, we do more fight-flight, which we call, which I sometimes call true refuges. We try to w- find a way to be more comfortable. And then what happens is we don't like ourselves for how we're trying to get more comfortable because what are our ways of doing it? We seek approval. We become dependent on others giving us a thumbs up. You know, we try to soothe ourselves with addictive behavior and we're just striving. And and we can tell that we're trying to be better because we feel like we're not okay. So we don't like ourselves for the ways that we try to um, deal with our suffering. So it compounds. See what I'm saying? The example that I'll share tonight about this is um, came from a beautiful article from The Sun magazine. 
This woman writes, my mother always assured me that unspeakable punishments were bound to befall any child as naughty as I was. If I were you, she'd say, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night for fear God would strike me dead. She would speak these words softly, regretfully, as though saddened by her errant daughter's fate. I thought myself unloved and unlovable, not only by my own mother, but by God himself. In addition to threatening me with thoughts of eternal damnation, mother also gave me a fear of strangers, germs, disease, and food poisoning. A precocious and imaginative child, I added a few of my own bizarre fears to the list. Rare ailments learned from medical dictionaries falling into the wrong dimension, spontaneous human combustion. When I was suspended from my private girls' school at age 15 for a harmless prank, the headmistress referred to my behavior as damnable. This was no big news to my mother or me. What was news was that I had the highest IQ and the lowest grades in the entire student body. I took pride in the fact that although I was a dysfunctional underachiever, at least I wasn't stupid. The most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I'd just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was bad timing on my part. How could anyone ever love you, she responded. It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. Recently, discussing eating disorders with my therapist, I related a childhood ritual of mine, intending it to be an amusing anecdote to illustrate how far back my eating problems went. I even laughed as I spoke, poking gentle fun at myself. It was only when I noticed that my therapist was watching me with sympathy rather than amusement that I became aware of the tears on my own cheeks. This is what I told her. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out of, uh, from under the covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese which I would carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair, my eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. So as we begin to become aware of trance, we notice that there's a very deep pain or wound, and then there's the efforts to help us from feeling that rawness, and how easily we can go through decades if one of those efforts is to self-soothe with food, for instance, which is so common. Um, Hating ourselves, feeling disgusted in ourselves for our attempt to try to soothe pain that was too much to handle. So it's not our fault. The uh, conditioning of, you know, our parenting, our genetics, it's not our fault. It's not our fault that we try to do the best we can to make ourselves feel better. Now, it gets greatly exacerbated, this trance. Again, the trance means that we are pulling away from our wholeness, contracting, no longer feeling a sense of belonging greatly exacerbated with trauma. 
because the very nature of trauma is such an extreme fight-flight reaction that we fully disconnect from a sense of wholeness. We pull way, way in. One of the best descriptions I've heard is uh, Dan Siegel, who's a psychologist, psychoneurologist, who puts up his hand and he says, okay, so this wrist is the brain stem and my thumb is the limbic system and these fingers are the frontal cortex, okay? And he says, when we're traumatized, what happens is we flip our lid. Now what that means is that there's a disconnection. Normally when we're like this, kind of a hole, there's information flowing up and down so that even when we're triggered by strong emotions, there's a remembrance. This frontal cortex can remember the bigger picture. It can remember empathy, it can remember, it, it is, has the capacity for mindfulness, for perspective, for understanding. We flip our lid, we have no access to the big picture, we're stuck in a very small fragment of ourself. And when we're traumatized, that flipping happens a lot. We can be, you know, triggered to flip our lid over and over again. And so our identity gets to be much more, much smaller in a much tighter fight-flight place. Again, not our fault. The trance deepens depending on the cultural context, so we start thinking of our culture and how addicted it is to consuming and how much violence. And we start sensing how much that affects you know, it, it fuels the false refuges of seeking entertainment, fuels the false refuges of, of a sense of a self and having to navigate through a world of people out there so others become unreal others. And um, example, working people frequently ask retired people what they do to make their days interesting. Well, for example, the other day Mary, my wife, and I went into town and visited a shop. When we came out, there was a cop writing out a parking ticket. We went up to him and said, come on, man, how about giving a senior citizen a break? He ignored us and continued writing the ticket. I called him a silly creep. He glared at me and started writing another ticket for having worn out tires. So Mary called him a nutface. He finished the second ticket and put it on the windshield with the first. Then he started writing more tickets. She called him a stupid head. It went on 20 minutes. The more we abused him, the more tickets he wrote. Just then our bus arrived and we got on it and went home. <laughs> we try to have a little fun each day now that we're retired. It's important at our age. <laughs> so it's, it's a, a bit of fun, but sensing this unreal other, having fun at that other's expense. And then, of course, as we know, the trance of separation becomes acute and, and profoundly painful when it comes to a culture that has a hierarchy and oppresses minorities. And I've ha- been having a lot of back forths with Ruth King, who some of you know, wonderful woman. She's African-American woman who's a lesbian who's done much teaching on diversity And we brought Ruth in to work with our teacher training group here in Washington. Uh, She designed a really powerful uh, kind of a a day long or weekend program. Well, Ruth and I have some back forth about uh, diversity issues and so on. So I sent her um, a Dear Abby that somebody sent me. And 
because um, this is the kind of, we have a very kind of playful relationship. And this Dear Abby says, a couple of women moved, Dear Abby, a couple of women moved in across the hall from me. One is a middle-aged gym teacher and the other is a social worker in her mid-twenties. These two women go everywhere together and I've never seen a man go into or leave their apartment. Do you think they could be Lebanese? <laughs> so, so I sent this to, to Ruth, you know, just saying, you know, material on multiculturalism, people not understanding and so on. And she goes, this is, I just wanted to share with you her response. She goes, too funny. This almost tops my mother's comment when she was trying to impress my partner some years back with how liberal Palm Springs was. She says, we've got it going on in here in Palm Springs. We're a city of lesbitarians. <laughs> we even have a flag hanging outside City Hall. She wrote me back again and said she had had a typo. It wasn't flag, she meant to say. So, she, so we've been going on this back forth. I want to share with you, though, the, the exercise she designed because I thought it was so beautiful. And I wish that I could share with you some of people's experiences through it. Because what we're talking about is going in a trance. And a trance means you don't see through other people's eyes. Trance means that you're caught in a very narrow sliver of reality. And so she designed an exercise where she basically said she wanted everybody in the training to find a situation where they would be the minority and to go in and really experience what they could experience. And um, people's sharings uh, were incredibly touching. And one of, the, one of the takeaways was getting the suffering both of the unseen, unrecognized other, getting it a little more, just a little, because this is just a one exercise, not to pretend you get it, but getting it more, but feeling the suffering of the one who isn't seeing, see, feeling the suffering of the one who has privilege, feeling the suffering of the one who's created separation by not seeing. So in this way, the, some of the realizations were of the trance that each of us is in, whether we're the oppressor or supposedly the oppressed or victim. Story for you on this. So a friend of mine is teaching in a maximum security prison and teaching a a Buddhist meditation course. And one of the women in the course, very large woman with bright red dyed hair and tattoos, known in the ward as a bully, she protected some women, she relentlessly insulted and intimidated others. And during the meditation classes, other people would be kind of sitting and joining in for the discussions, and she just sit there very silent and scowling. So she was intimidating, but she never missed a session, okay? An eight-week course. Final class, going around the circle, everybody's sharing, she speaks last, she goes, well, what I really liked was that poem about the pirate. Okay, so this is the poem she was referring to is, uh, by Thich Nhat Hanh. And I'll just read you a verse, it's called, Call Me By My True Names. And in this verse that she liked, this is what it says. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. 
and I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. Please call me by my true names. So she said, you know, that got me thinking. It made me know something. And she spoke really softly. Everybody had a strain to hear her. She said, all my life, I was the bad one, the problem one. Now I know I am suffering too. The group was really silent and still, and she had, she had tears in her eyes, but everybody was looking at the floor, just respecting her words. So after that group graduated, my friend continued to teach the course, was able to hear some wor- by word of mouth that how this woman had transformed. She wasn't a bully anymore. She was a sad and much quieter person, but she was slowly coming to terms with the realness of her own suffering. She was waking up from trance. We are unreal to ourselves when we're not in touch with our suffering. We're unreal and we can't see others well. So the inquiry then is, how do we wake up from this trance that keeps us in this perception that we're separate? And often the perception that goes with separateness is very ex- is very obvious, which is, I'm not okay. So not only am I a separate egoic self, I'm a not okay egoic self. And one of the ways I think of it is that in any moment that we're reacting, we're in reaction and pulling away from presence, pulling away from others, pulling away from a part of ourselves that um, Just let that be a wake-up for all of us, why not? (laughs) Any moment that we're pulling away from our experience, we're creating unlived life. Any moment that we're not present and we're moving away from some pain in us, some shame in us, some fear, some anger, any moment that we're judging it, we lock it in, it becomes frozen in our tissues in some way. An unlived life means trance. It means that we're not in touch with our wholeness. Alice Miller writes this. She says, The truth about childhood is stored up in our body, and although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, and conceptions confused, and our body tricked with medication. But someday our body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child who still whole in spirit will accept no compromises or excuses and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading the truth. If I put that in different words, if we're not inhabiting our wholeness, if we're in trance, there's going to be some part of us that keeps reminding us In other words, if we're forgetting, forgetting who we are, there's going to be some part from the depth of who we are that's saying, come back, come home. You're not resting in your wholeness. And often that part has a real sincere quality of longing to it. The longing is, it comes from that place in us that that intuits a larger belonging and it's calling us home. 
And that's so much of what I could feel in the groups, this naming of where the forgetting is, naming of the expressions of forgetting, the fear, the hurt, the anger, and this longing to be true to ourselves, to live in that wholeness. So I want to spend the rest of, of the time that I'll be speaking talking about how we come into a wise relationship with the unlived life. How do we come in and be with and embrace what's there so we can rest in our wholeness? And the metaphor I'd like to offer, which I've shared at different times and I find very compelling, is of, it comes from Asian art. And in Asia, a lot of the art at the temples and you'll see these in the mandalas, has these animal-headed goddesses at the entry. So before you go into the, in, into the temple, you have to pass through these animal-headed goddesses. Or if you're coming into the center of the mandala, you have to you know, see pictures of them in the mandala. And these deities are contortions of unlived life. It's like their essence is aliveness, awareness, purity. But what happens to that when we think we're separate. Okay? These, these animal-headed deities are what happens to our aliveness and awareness when we think we're separate. There's a contortedness, a contraction. So these are the deities of hatred and anger, of jealousy, of fear, of shame, the passions where we're hooked. Okay? And the reason I love the metaphor is because they're deities. I mean, this is sacred energy. It's just in shapes that are calling our attention, saying basically, wake up. There's still some sense of separateness. Wake up. And it's until we embrace the deities, embrace the anger, the fear, the hatred, in other words, meet it with consciousness, that we can actually enter sacred space. So it doesn't make the egoic energy's wrong. They're just confused. There's a misunderstanding about who we are that we need to work out. And Sherry spoke to this beautifully last night. You know, there's, there's a truth of what we are or what we are not that this is what we're awakening to. But these strong emotions we get hooked by are our messengers. They're the shape of forgetting. Okay, so... How do we work with the animal-headed goddesses or deities? The Buddha gave the elegance of these two wings of awareness that allow us to be free. And one wing is understanding, which includes mindful attention, inquiry, investigating, profoundly recognizing what is here. That's one of the wings. And we've been exploring that and cultivating that. And again, Sherry spoke about that inquiry. It's that quality of attention that's very engaged, that wants to know the truth. It's the part of you that wants to know reality. Okay, that's that wing. The other wing is the wing of compassion, which really has that quality of space and allowing and tenderness. We have to have both wings. I simplify them to recognizing and allowing, and in their fullness, there's understanding and compassion. So I'd like to share a a story of 
one person's experience working with the animal-headed goddesses, the deities, um, that really has the ingredients of these two wings and, and what for me was a clear way. As, as many of you know, I often take those two wings and use the acronym RAIN as to how it can unfold this quality of presence. RAIN is recognize and allow. The eye of RAIN is deepening the recognizing and allowing by investigating with kindness. When there's a tangle, if you just say, okay, what's going on in here and can I allow this? If it's a real tangle, you're going to have a glancing blow, so to speak. You might a little bit contact it or also be very vague, but there will not be a real engagement with the deities. That's where the eye comes in. The eye is where there's this commitment. Okay, this tangle is the place that wants to be more awake. This is where the freedom's possible. And then we investigate with, with uh, a real intimate attention. The end of rain, there's no doing. The end of rain's the fruit. When you bring a full presence that has these two wings, it dissolves the identification. You're not identified anymore. Which might sound dry, but that's freedom. You're not identified with that sliver that's in the trance. You're back to your natural wholeness, wholeheartedness. So rain is uh, just a description of how we bring these two wings of, of mindfulness and love to free and to loosen that identification and free us back into really being true to our, our true selves. So the story. This is, and this is included in uh, True Refuge. This, the woman I was working with, her name was Amy, for all extents and purposes. Her mother had terminal breast cancer. She was the only local offspring. And so she was the one that was the caretaker. And her mother had been extremely narcissistic and neglectful in her early years. So she had avoided her mom for years really, really taken a big, big distance. But now she, she had no choice and she had to deal with her anger. And she told me one of the fir- earliest memories was she's three years old. Her mother's yelling at her that the bath is ready to get in the tub. And what's waiting for her when she goes upstairs is three inches of very lukewarm water. She's three years old and she has this recognition, this is all I'm ever going to get. So there's neglect. So there's a lot of rage going on. And so we bring rain to rage and recognize and allow, okay, there's, there's rage here. But we couldn't keep investigating because she had a real fear that if she opened to the rage, it would be uncontrollable and destructive to the people around her and to herself. So we had to slow down. I'm giving you this is a little more complex, but it's real. Something comes up, but there's another part of us that's not ready for it. So we had to honor the fear and give the fear some real presence and let it express its concerns. And once it did, there was more space and willingness to then work with the anger. So I hope that doesn't sound confusing, but that's kind of what happened. So then her process is, okay, so she's recognizing, allowing the anger to be there, and she's investigating. And investigating includes just saying, well, 
okay, here's the storyline. But investigating is, well, what does this feel like in my body? What's it like? What is this anger trying to communicate, you know, from a very felt sense kind of experience, not intellectual. And when we kind of inquired into it, the anger just wanted to fully express itself. And so she gave it permission. She said, okay, let's let it rip, you know. And I, and I encouraged her to, in her stillness, inside, let it completely explode. And that's what she did. So then the investigating and the presence was with, okay, what's happening now? And at first it was like this hot pressured cauldron in her chest and it wanted to explode. It became bursting flames like a windstorm that was spreading. And of course it crashed through the windows of my office and spread through the East Coast and that kind of thing. And she felt like it was like destroying all life forms in its path. It was ripping through the earth. And then it spread into space, of course, and it just kept spreading. And each juncture she kind of, I said, no, just see what it wants to do now. Which, by the way, is really important. Because if we right away say there's something wrong with anger, we never let it unfold itself into what it wants to express. So we kept saying, we kept giving permission let it expand. So it just blasted through the galaxies. I could keep going and going, but you get the general, general notion of it. And then it began to quiet. And so I said, okay, so let that happen. And it was losing steam. Then she sat back inside and she goes, now there's just emptiness. It was like a hollow emptiness. There's, there's no one left in the world and I'm utterly alone. That was the the anger did its thing. She's utterly alone. Then she said, there's no one who loves me and there's no one I can love. And at that point, what was under the anger, after it had its chance to undo itself, the layer under it, the deep grief, was available to her. And that's when she began a real grief for the loss of love. And again, recognize it, allow it, investigate. What does it want? Where is it expressing? So she asked, she kept sensing, well, what does this grief want? What does it need? It just needed a kind presence. So she put her hand on her heart. And I often, as many of you know, um, when we're being with ourselves and offering presence, the touch, especially if it's tender and conscious, can radically rearrange our relationship with our inner life. So it's a very, very powerful way to shift, because our identity is usually identified with that part of the the self that's wounded or vulnerable, so we begin to open to something larger that way. And she started sending the message she felt it most needed, which is, I'm sorry and I love you, which is a message that um, I had learned years ago reading a Hawaiian healer's description of, of the transformation process. So she sent that message in. She started getting the image of the little girl in the bathtub and this is where it was therapeutic. You know, she's sending the message into that child. But as this happened, this investigate and offer an intimate attention, she started reporting a shift where there's more space, which is often what happens because contraction is tight. And when there's a shift in identity, you sense an openness and it's not just around you, it's inside you, it's, every, it's a kind of continuous space. So she sensed that shift and there was a, just a space of compassionate presence. 
That's the end of rain, not identified, natural awareness. And there's a lot more to the story, but gradually that enab- that spaciousness and tenderness allowed her to begin to relate to her mother from her true self, which is much more free. Not that there was anything wrong with the anger, but there was a more free place to be once she had embraced that deity. Does that make sense? She could live from a more full place. So these are the two wings. Recognize what's happening and sometimes really look closely. What is, what is this? What does it want from me? What is its deepest need? And that allowing, that tenderness. Now I want to name two particular um, setups that make it so that we can't approach the goddesses this way. And one setup that stops us from doing this direct recognizing and allowing is when there's heavy trauma. If there's strong trauma by saying, okay, recognize fear and allow the fear and let it be as big as it is, that's going to re-traumatize because we don't have the container and the resources to let it rip. So in those cases, the first step, and this is just a real act of compassion, is to do whatever we can to create more safety, more sense of love. Whatever pathway works for us, whether it's feeling the sense of our dog's presence or working actively with another person who can reassure us, our calling on the Buddha or a deity that we have a sense of connection with, whatever gives us some sense relatively of safety, some sense of remembering oceanness and belonging, then we can begin the rain process. Okay, so that's one of the setups where we can't go directly into engaging with the deities. The second setup, a little different, and that's when we're so caught in self-doubt, we're so caught in a sense of our own badness that we just can't forgive that the deities are there. Some of you know what I mean by that. You feel so bad about the shame being there, so bad about, about um, the anger or whatever, that it just, there's no way to start beginning to investigate. There's too much conflict with what's there. The self-doubt is another deity. It's a very, very forceful one. It's huge. It can uh, get us paralyzed. But it, the deity of doubt's a big one. And if you can remember to start there, then everything can unfold in an amazing way. If you can remember that this non-forgiving experience is another, wa- another trance, there's something you're not seeing if you're not forgiving. If you are holding yourself, if you're at war with yourself, there's something you're not seeing. The example I give a lot is if you imagine you're on a path and you see a dog under a tree and you go to greet the dog and the dog lurches at you and the fangs are bared and, you know, just looks like it's going to kill you. And you go from going, oh, cute doggy, to, you know, angry and threatened. And then you notice that the dog's paw is caught in a trap. And again you shift. And it's like, oh, 
Oh, I get it. That's how come. When we're not forgiving our conditioning, it's because we're not getting the how come. We're not, we're not getting that, that sense of it's really not our fault. Everything that comes into being gets lost into being, forgetting its way back. And you add the layers of the way that often the misunderstandings and uh, lack of, of good loving and you add the culture We've got our paws in a trap and our most direct access to freedom is to be willing to look and see how that is true so that we can tenderize our hearts. Eric Kolvik, who's a a dear friend and friend of the Sanghas, and he's come here a number of times to teach, there's a few... um, when we do a forgiveness practice, there's a few uh, messages that he includes, a few phrases that I think are so powerful that I want to share them with you. This is when you're extending forgiveness to yourself. You might just imagine, just listen to them and imagine how they, sense how they land for you. I allow myself to be imperfect. I allow myself to make mistakes. I allow myself to be a learner, still learning life's lessons. I forgive myself. And if I cannot forgive myself now, may I forgive myself sometime in the future. I've seen over and over again with myself and with many people that the moment of forgiving and self-compassion is the moment of the shift in identity and waking from trance. When there's something in us that softens a little, for me it's often the phrase something like, it's okay, sweetheart, you know, or it's not my fault. And I say it to other people a lot. When we start getting that, it's really not our fault really, truly, then we're not taking it personally and the identity shifts. There's a softening and there's an opening and we can begin to see our inherent goodness and trust it more. So just want to share with you um, about, for Amy, um, kind of, I want to tell you about our last meeting together. Because she, she to- her mom got sicker and sicker progressively. She told me about her mom waking up hot and sweaty and she put a cool cloth on her mom's forehead and then kind of, you know, kind of on different parts of her body that just would respond well to coolness. And her mom said, nobody's ever washed me. And so Amy thought of that, the little girl and how both she and her mom had... Uh, felt neglected, um, then reacted out of that feeling of neglected. And she just touched a really uncomplicated love where she could sense who was behind the mask, who was behind the neglected person or the self-absorbed person to a vulnerability and deep down a wanting to live and wanting to, to love and a wanting to have a life. And she said that she that that moment of uncomplicated 
love was the greatest gift that she knew then she could just cherish her mom long after she was gone. So we practice relating to the deities first within ourselves. We really can't open to how other people's egos and defenses and aggressions play out. We can't truly open to them with an allowing heart if we have not engaged with the shape of forgetting in our own body-mind. So it does, it's not like a rigid sequence, but, it, but we need to be paying attention inwardly. And then as we do, as there's that more of that softness and openness of heart, just as I allow myself to be imperfect, I can allow you to be imperfect. Just as I allow myself to make mistakes, I can allow you to make mistakes. That space of allowing, which is an expression of freedom, we get to live more from the truth of who we are. So one, of, uh, one teacher, Chogyam Trungpa, puts it this way, that if we, ha- if we face those deities, we can start learning to not give up on anyone. We start being able to have this capacity to see through the mask, which is the greatest gift you can ever offer to anyone, is to see who they are. If you're living true to yourself, you can help that person see who they are and live true to themselves, to their goodness. I was uh, a few weeks ago with La and a few other friends when uh, our good buddy Gretchen became installed as a <clears throat> Superior Court judge. And I was just reflecting a lot on that, on the responsibility of that to be able to sense um, when people cause each other suffering and still hold in your heart and mind the vision and sense of who that person is and their goodness to really respond in a way that's going to be helpful. And, and it reminded me of a story that I want to, kind of the final story maybe I'll be sharing with you in the time here. And it, it reminded me of a story told by a man who worked with juvenile offenders in D.C. Um, most of the youth were gang members who had committed homicide. And one, who's a 14-year-old, had shot and killed an innocent teen to prove himself to the gang. So this is the trance of the culture in its most horrendous way. Okay. During the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end, and when the youth was convicted of the killing, verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared at him and said, I'm going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in juvenile facility. After six months, the mother of the slain child went to jail, visited his killer. He'd been living on the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor he'd had. For a time, they talked, and when... She left, she gave him money for snacks and so on. And she started visiting more regularly, bringing food and small gifts. She, she, she basically asked him how he was doing, what was on his mind. She listened. Near the end of the three-year sentence, she asked him what he'd be doing when he got out. So he was confused, he was uncertain. She offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he'd live, and since he had no family to return to, she offered him a temporary use of the spare room in her home. For eight months, he lived there, ate her food, worked at a job. Then one evening, she called him into the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him, 
took time for a long pause, and she said, do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? He said, I sure do. Well, I did. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for, for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. And that's why I started to visit you and bring you things to talk, listen, get you a job, let you live here. So that's how I set about changing you. Now that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. I've got room and I'd like to adopt you if you'll let me. And so she became the mother of her son's killer, the mother that he had never had. So my intention in sharing that is not that I could wake up out of my trance of special relationship with my son and respond that way. It's not like we need to be superhuman. But it is to say there is a capacity within each of us to, no matter what the conditioning we're caught in, to bring a presence to that conditioning in a way that that presence allows the light of who we are to shine through. That's the path of true refuge, that we bring a presence here and now to the life that's right here. And sometimes we begin by bringing that softening of love. But we bring a presence, it's in that presence we rediscover who we are. And then we have this capacity, and it's, this is the bodhisattva path, the path of awakening, that we begin to look at each other and see who's looking through those eyes. We see past the ego defenses. It doesn't mean we ignore them, but we see past them. We see to the heart that has this potential to really shine, and we invite it forward. Saints are not, or saints are what they are not because their sanctity makes them admirable to others, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. We see the goodness. So tonight, you know, I began with that reflection that of those that are dying have this regret of not living true to ourselves. And I've really come to see that most of the moments that we're feeling bad or bad about ourselves, it's because in some way we don't feel aligned with who we are. We're just not at home in the truth of who we are. And the pathway really is over and over again to notice, let that suffering be a invitation, be a calling, be a flag that says, come back, pay attention. These deities are made of awareness, made of aliveness. They're just tight because of this misperception and our presence can awaken us with that. So we'll close, very brief way, to, uh, with a reflection, just give you a chance just to explore a little bit of some of the, some of what I brought up about bringing these two wings to what's here. And this just be a couple of minutes and then we'll, 
be ended. In the quietness to let yourself connect with what's right here. And to just sense into today and what of the animal-headed goddesses, which of them you perhaps have encountered. What are the shapes of, of ego or emotion that have appeared calling your attention? So if there's one particular energy, just to take some moments to bring a presence to that. Might be some moments where you felt very caught in fear or anger, self-doubt, guilt, jealousy. Any moment where you didn't feel at home with yourself, that you were in that moment living true to yourself where you detected some trance. For some, you might have something in mind directly, something strong, others might not, but just to kind of sense into it. And for now, just Explore and see what happens when your response first is to forgive and allow the deities for being there. You might explore the the phrases I mentioned. I allow myself to be imperfect. I allow myself to make mistakes. I allow myself to be a learner, still learning life's lessons. I forgive myself. If I cannot forgive myself now, may I forgive myself sometime in the future. Just let it be okay that this appearance of life is calling your attention. And just take another few moments to examine it a bit, to investigate, and if you'd like to put your hand on your heart and just sense the gesture of offering a kind and clear presence to whatever is here so that whatever is going on right now, regardless of this particular guided exercise, these are moments that you can offer yourself the gift of these two wings. You might vary the touch a little so it really is tender and it communicates care. Letting yourself be aware of how the deities are presenting in your body, what the feeling is, the sensations. 
perhaps what you're believing, what's the limiting belief, the fear belief that's going on when you're entranced in this with the deity. Whenever we're suffering, we're believing something that's not true. And mostly sensing what this vulnerable place wants from you. How does it want you to pay attention? What does it need right now? Sensing the possibility of offering to your own being that healing presence. Trusting that as we offer forgiving and healing presence to life within, that presence has the space, awakeness, and tenderness to include life everywhere. We close with a verse from the Radiant Sutras. There's a place in the heart where everything meets Go there if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are there. Are you there? Enter the bowl of vastness that is the heart. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is there and a steady regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing, I belong here, I am at home here. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing, I belong here, I am at home here. Namaste. Thank you for your attention.